The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Madison Mills, Paul Sweeney here in the Bloomberg Interactive Brokers Studio. Time for a little tech talk. So we turn to Ashley Still, Senior Vice President and General Manager for the Creative Cloud and Document Cloud at a little tech firm you might have heard of, Adobe. So, Ashley, we can talk about the cloud because that was the cool kid on the block until about a month ago. And then this thing, AI, came out of nowhere. At least that's how it seems to me. And now that's all anybody can talk about. I would love to get your, based upon your background in, in, in tech technology, kind of what you believe AI is um, and, and what it can be. Well, first, thank you for having me. Really appreciate being on the show um, and talking with you today. So, yes, I mean, AI has been around for actually a long time, um, but certainly um, uh, the technology is rapidly accelerating. And, um, and one of the things that's changed is kind of the methodologies and uh, being used in AI where increasingly the algorithms can kind of produce content on their own um, versus uh, historically more automating repetitive tasks. So in the case of images, obviously you think of Adobe, you think of creativity. Um, in the case of images, it's now possible to create content just by simply writing text prompts. Um, so if you want a red balloon, right, you can just, um, uh, the technology can basically imagine, if you will, a red balloon for you. Um, and, and that has been advancing pretty rapidly over the past few years. Ashley, you're, you're the perfect person to talk to about this. You're a former corporate finance analyst. Can you talk to me about the calculation for some of these companies that are reallocating their budgets to throw money at AI? How do you rate that decision? Well, certainly at Adobe, I mean, we believe that um, it's incredibly innovative technology that will help make our products better um, for existing users and help us actually expand who can use our products. So uh, the, the example that I just gave where you can now create content um, uh, using simple text prompts, that's much more accessible than going you know, to design school and, and learning um, sophisticated applications and tools, but it also makes the sophisticated applications and tools like Photoshop better and more powerful for the creative professionals. And, and it, it's unusual when you have a technology that both expands your market opportunity, but also makes your products better and more valuable for your existing customers. And, and that's why we're excited about generative AI. So how do you I guess, integrate generative AI into what you're doing at Adobe? I mean, is this something that 
you guys have, have, I guess, maybe stepped up investment in time and effort and money over the last year or two. How's that developed for you guys? Sure, absolutely. I mean, we've been investing in AI for, you know, a decade at least. Um, but but certainly um, we've been ramping up our efforts around generative AI. And there's a couple things we're doing. We announced an incredibly exciting and very well-received um, update to Photoshop last week. So we introduced a new beta of Photoshop where there's a feature called generative fill. And this enables you to add, remove, and extend your content in Photoshop, again, using simple text prompts. It's all non-destructive. So again, this is the power of Photoshop where you can um, accelerate your work and kind of have new ideas and, and explore creative possibilities in a really uh, uh, kind of low risk, so to, so to speak, way, um, and just have a lot of fun. So we've had 70 million images generated in Photoshop over the last week alone in a beta application. Wow. And, and again, the response from our community has been fantastic. We also introduced an entirely new experience called Adobe Firefly. And uh, you know anyone can access this on uh, firefly.adobe.com. Um, so go check out the website. It's completely free. And, uh, and there you can, uh, anyone in the world with access to a browser can create content. Um, again, just type, typing in simple text prompts um, and, and, and really just have a ton of fun. And Adobe offers the creative cloud across a lot of platforms from desk desktop to, of course, mobile. And one of the big AI questions is how we're going to get the juice we need, for lack of a better term, on our phones to power the, the AI uh, tools that are going to be made available to us. Is that something that you all are thinking about at Adobe when you think about AI questions? Absolutely. Um, you know, and we actually, on the document cloud side, um, we have a very powerful AI model called Liquid Mode that's inside of Acrobat on uh, on mobile devices, both on iOS and Android. And that actually takes any PDF that's been created in the 30-year history of PDF and basically reformats it so you can read it on a phone, right? It takes what what would have otherwise been rendered as, you know, an eight and a half by 11 piece of paper, which is unreadable. And, uh, and basically reflows it into an HTML experience magically on, on your device. And so these devices are incredibly powerful. Certainly technology always, uh, you know, raises the bar. Um, but we work closely with, you know, folks like Google and Apple to, to constantly improve what's possible on, on devices. So, Ashley, again, you mentioned, and we've heard from others, that you know, artificial intelligence has obviously been around for a while. But it just feels like maybe it's just the NVIDIA, you know, raising their, their outlook so dramatically and the big increase in market capitalization that they saw in, in their company that maybe it's just come to everybody's attention right now. But almost every single company in the S&P 500 on their last earnings call mentioned AI. So I'm wondering, from your perspective, as you have been working with it for a long time within the creative cloud and the document cloud, What's the biggest risk to, I guess, just AI and the development of AI, do you think? Well, one of the risks that we're uh, very focused on and kind of passionate about is the risk for misinformation. And, uh, and you know, there's a lot of trust that we all put in content. Uh, when we see an image that's, you know, on a news site um, or even, you know, shared by family, there's, there's a certain amount of trust that you have to have in how that content was created. 
And we feel strongly, again, just based on the pace of change and innovation in AI right now, that we all need what's, what we refer to as nutrition labels for content. Right. We're part of about a thousand member um, consortia. It's an open standard that's developing content credentials. Think of this again as a nutrition label for content. And, and we really yep. believe consumers need this information so that we can trust what we see. Yep. A very, very important. And that will be a challenge going forward, no doubt. Ashley Still, Senior Vice President and General Manager uh, of the Creative Cloud and Document Cloud at Adobe, uh, one of the uh, leading tech companies based in San Jose, California, talking about the cloud, AI. Uh, it's everywhere, folks. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. You're listening to The Team, Cantor Live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app, or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Let's talk markets here. Let's talk fixed income. We talk fixed income. We like to talk to Laird Landman, Generalist Portfolio Manager at TCW. Uh, Laird, thanks so much for joining us here. We love getting your view here. It looks like our good friends in Washington, D.C. are going to... Uh, avoid a debt default, a debt crisis. How do you kind of put that all into context here? Did, were you ever, what was your level of concern and, and how do you think we go from here? Well, I think we have to say they avoid it again. Um, this is sort of a uniquely uh, uh, American thing. It's kind of like country line dancing or something <laughs> that we go through this dance every once in a while. Um, yeah, you know, the, the the bigger the stakes are, the more likely cooler heads are to prevail. So we never had that much concern about it. Um, we obviously went through a lot of operational hoops to make sure in case there was a brief period of default that, you know, we could, you know, as a manager, we could manage that. But uh, I don't think we had any real belief that that we were going to get have a default at this point. Are you thinking more then about the next Fed meeting? Does that feel like the bigger question mark for you? Well, I think it is. I mean, I think you know the market consensus is certainly a hundred percent over the next uh, two meetings for for another hike, um, and certainly if we get a strong jobs number, and again, like the Jolts number, these numbers can bounce around quite a bit, and the market generally overreacts to this short-term news. So we could see uh, short rates get pushed back up near their highs again if we get a strong jobs number. Um, but certainly over the long term, you know, you look at some of the effects that the higher rates are having, whether it's what happened with banks in March uh, or what's happening to the interest expense uh, on U.S. debt right now, uh, really moving up from 19% of tax, reserve, uh, tax dollars to 33% uh, is now being used for uh, interest expense. This is going to have a, a, a pretty big uh, hit to the economy, and uh, I think the, the Fed is kind of dancing right on the edge here, uh, not realizing that these you know, the monetary policy hits with longer delays. So, Laird, given that backdrop, given where we are with the Fed and, I guess, the debt ceiling, where are you seeing opportunities here um, at TCW? Well, I think I think that we think fixed income, you know, is setting up for probably 
close to double-digit types of returns. I think that you you want to be in the intermediate part of the yield curve. The Fed is going to have to ease at some point here. The banking system will continue to be under stress as long as they keep increasing rates uh, or holding them higher. Uh, and so eventually, uh, they're going to have to turn this around. The market thinks fourth, uh, the fourth quarter of this year uh, is when we start seeing easing. Um, and that will also bring about lower interest rate volatility. I think you're very aware that interest rate volatility has been very high. Sectors like agency mortgages are pretty much as cheap as we've ever seen them because they've been hit by the high volatility. Um, we, we would go all in right now uh, pretty much on the agency uh, mortgage basis. Um, we think that that's probably you know, one of the most liquid and cheapest sectors out there. Avoid, avoid sort of uh, large-scale exposure to corporates uh, at this point because – they could see some spread widening as the economy uh, begins to deteriorate. What are you thinking about in terms of the biggest losers potentially heading into the second half of 2024? Where are you saying we need to kind of get out of? Yeah, well, if, we, if we're looking out uh, over the next year, uh, certainly anything uh, commercial real estate related, particularly around the office, center, uh, uh, office sector, is going to be under pressure. But it, it'll expand beyond that because, as, as we're very aware, uh, small and mid-sized banks are going to be cutting back lending uh, over the next year. And they support a lot of not necessarily office properties, but they su- support a lot of smaller projects uh, that can get rolled up into some of the conduit deals that might be uh, – residential, uh, multifamily, they might be uh, strip malls, things like that. Um, I think there's going to be general carnage there. We're seeing uh, appraisals uh, coming down uh, on in L.A. Um, on uh, office properties, you know, 50, 60 percent from 2019 levels. Um, and we certainly think that, you know, you got to avoid office properties, L.A., San Francisco, uh, Chicago, uh, New York, and Houston. Uh, those are sort of the big sectors that we're trying to avoid uh, in our portfolio. And we think there could be individual uh, securities that are tied to those office properties that could take very, very large losses. So that to us is a priority to be avoiding those pitfalls uh, in the portfolio. How about emerging markets, Laird? Is that is that something that's attractive to you guys at this point? Well, I, I would always defer to uh, Penny Foley, our team leader, who's done it for 40-plus years. Um, <laughs> they certainly think that they're seeing some opportunities there. Um, as we look at the type of credit risk you have to take in emerging markets for a largely U.S.-based portfolio that we manage, um, we certainly see better value in things like agency mortgages, as I mentioned. You're not taking uh, a lot of credit risk, at least as long as this debt deal passes. Right. You're not taking a lot of credit risk. Um, and you're getting spreads that are above uh, many of the investment-grade uh, emerging market countries. So we're going to stick with uh, sort of what we think is cheapest uh, and simplest in the portfolio here and will benefit most from a Fed tightening, and that's the agency mortgage basis. All right, good stuff. Uh, Laird Landman, uh, thanks so much for joining us. Laird Landman is the Generalist Portfolio Manager at TCW, and that is a trust company of the West back in the days. Big, big asset management firm, huge in equities, huge in fixed income, uh, based out in Los Angeles, uh, a big account out there. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. 
Let's check in with a professional here, Quincy Crosby. Uh, she is the chief global strategist for LPL Financial. That is the NASDAQ-traded company. LPLA is a ticker to load into your Bloomberg terminal there. Quincy, it looks like the uncertainty surrounding the debt deal um, to the extent there was some uncertainty for some people, some people more so than others. Looks like that's been kind of lifted here. Um, is that important to you? Or if it is, kind of maybe what else are you looking at now for the next kind of big, big catalyst for this market, one way or the other? Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the market does think that they're going to get uh, the vote, that it's then going to obviously go through the House and then to the Senate. And um, obviously, they want to do it expeditiously. But the market is also focused on the Fed. And you, you may have seen, uh, you know, this morning, the probability uh, to the futures is about 60 percent for a rate hike on June 14th. That, that's climbed higher uh, following Loretta Mester's comments. Now, she, she doesn't vote. And, you know, many, many of the uh, speakers don't vote. But nonetheless, they, they're, they're part of the discussion. And she's highly regarded. So the question is whether or not the Fed actually does come in with a rate hike. And, and the other question is, is, if they do, will it be one or two that the market can expect? So this is something that the market is you know, trying to piece together how the Fed will see the data coming in, particularly the payroll data and um, probably the ISM report next week on the prices paid in the service sector. So there's so much for the market to have to digest, but that really does matter for the market. And so does the debt ceiling, needless to say. And, you know, the market has quite a bit of a wall of worry yet, yet the market is up for the year. And uh, that is the price action that says, hey, wall of worry, don't stop worrying. We're still mm -hmm. going to prevail. Hey, Quincy, I wanted to reach out to you about this, so it's perfect that you're on our show today, to ask you about how us potentially approaching the end of the Fed rate hiking cycle uh, might lead to more weakness in the U.S. dollar, and if that is something that you're anticipating and maybe changing uh, some of your uh, thinking and positioning around. You know, that's that's logical. You know, there's, there's, there's this entire a story about the dollar, whether or not, you know, King Dollar is finished. And that's one thing, whether or not, you know, it is China trying to push us the dollar out of the reserve currency status or put the yuan right up there with the U.S. dollar. But the other one is, is predicated on on the economy. It's predicated on, on whether or not uh, we do stop raising rates and we lose the interest rate differential. That's normal. And, as, you know, as the Fed does finish, and we do expect the Fed to be finished, uh, you know, if it's not in June, it'll be sometime in the summer, that the dollar will ease further. And that does help global financial conditions. A, a weaker dollar does help. It helps uh, many of the big tech names. They're, they're global leaders. They've got a global footprint, and a, a softer dollar does help. It also helps other companies, you know, the the, the companies in the S&P 500 that have nothing to do with technology, but that, you know, sell overseas. But it also helps emerging markets uh, in that we know from many of the reports coming out that are having trouble servicing their debt, dollar denominated debt. The weaker dollar does help. It also helps commodities. So all of the all of that together should help um, should help the overall economy and also help um 
you know, the big companies and help uh, help emerging markets to some degree. You mentioned some of the companies that have a big presence overseas being some of the bigger beneficiaries uh, within specifically the consumer discretionary and mm-hmm. staple sectors. Who do you think the biggest potential winners are because of that overseas presence? Well, you know, all all, all of the all the companies. I mean, you even have Walmart is, is active overseas. You you have. Uh, Procter and Gamble, the host raft of names that that came out, the pharmaceuticals uh, that that sell overseas, all of those companies coupled with the Microsoft, coupled with Apple, all of those are major beneficiaries of a weaker dollar. In fact, uh, Nike, I, I could go on and on because remember when the dollar was at, at its you know full strength. Uh, all we would hear during the earnings season was how it was hindering uh, their ability to, to do well. Now we're on the road towards the other extreme with the dollar um, easing, and it, it will ease. It's part of the it's part of the natural equilibrium in currency markets that when your central bank, particularly when it's the Fed, begins to tail off. Your currency is going to weaken. You still have the the euro um, climbing higher because the European Central Bank is most likely has a number of more rate hikes uh, in the pipeline. So you think even a retailer like a Nike has a chance despite some of the bad earnings that we just got from them because of weakening dollar? Well, no, it won't change a dynamic that is, you know, if you don't have customers or, or the global economy is slowing dramatically. But what it does do, it gives you an edge. It, it helps your um, competitiveness um, overseas. But, you know, you still need to have demand. You still need to have top line revenue growth. Uh, but what a weaker dollar does do, it, it helps. It gives, it gives you an edge. Hey, Quincy, I'm not sure if I'm representative, but boy, up until a few months ago, I didn't really think about this whole thing called AI, what the kids call AI, <laughs> artificial intelligence. But boy, every CEO on every earnings yeah. call talks about how AI is going to be the greatest thing for their business. It doesn't matter what business they're in. But then you see NVIDIA raise their guidance uh, last right. week and just an explosion in market capitalization for that company. I don't think I've ever seen that before. I mean, what do you make of this whole AI thing? Is it something that you think about as as you think about companies and and investments? Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I I have returned things to Amazon. And the first time I I did, I didn't know how to do it. And the kids weren't around to tell me or to actually do it for me. (laughs) So I called the number and the guy who answered wasn't real, but boy, was he nice. I felt like calling <laughs> up again. Just so easy to talk to, answering my questions. What the AI, and we have to, you know, put it in the context of why are the companies, the large companies, going into this area? Why are they working with NVIDIA, for example, Microsoft, continuing to press in it? Because they will be able to sell it to other companies so that they could cut costs. This is about cutting costs. And that is that is why it is important, because if the development, which has already begun, but if it intensifies with the, the attention that we see that NVIDIA has, has sort of uh, uh, unwound, um, it, it, it's going to be important and companies are going to be able to save money. Customer service is, is a you know, primary example of how much um, AI can help. 
Now, the thing is, you need to have strong balance sheets uh, and companies that are such such as, I'm not suggesting it or recommending it, but such as the Microsoft, to develop it and, and fine-tune it towards how they can sell it then to other companies. And that's going to be extremely important. You know, you see it in, in how do I say this, on the internet, um, even with Bloomberg, right, help with automation. That's going to intensify and it's going to become a much um, more prevalent part of the of the landscape, of the economic landscape. So, by the way, just having NVIDIA in that cohort to begin with, this is before their earnings, was pretty amazing. Yep. Just, you know, I've asked people, what is it? How do you pronounce it? How does it fit in with, with you know, the mega cap tech names? Yep. They are part of now the cohort. It is, actually. There will be others. There will be other. Quincy, thank you so much for joining us. Quincy Crosby, Chief Global Strategist at LPL Financial, talking about uh, these markets, talking about AI. It's a thing, folks. NVIDIA knows it. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. You know, I always say, or I have been saying recently that, boy, if I were to come back again and do this Wall Street thing again, I might look at private credit. That is a business that I think is just booming. It's got a great presence in the marketplace. It's desperately needed, particularly after the... Uh, a great financial crisis when the banks have been um, kind of pulling back a little bit. Uh, so I want to get the latest on what's happening in the private credit market. How's it performing in a rate where in a world where rates are, are rising? Jess Larson can help us out on that. He is the CEO and founder of Briarcliff Credit Partners. Jess, again, I love your business. I love the private credit business. I got my credit training at the Chase Manhattan <laughs> Bank, so I will stack my skills against anybody out there. Um, talk to us about the private credit market, how it's behaving you know, over the last 12 to 18 months in this rising interest rate environment. Mm -hmm. Paul, first of all, good, uh, good to be back on, the, back on the show. It's, it's always a pleasure. And I'm so glad to hear that in your next life, you're going to be a private credit yes. uh, professional, right? Come, we, we can do this together. Very good. Um, well, you know, it's so interesting. When you hear the Bloomberg flash, it sounds it's almost a little depressing, right, with all the uh, various equity indices down. So I'm glad that we're turning to a much more uh, positive news and positive subjects such as the private credit, because private credit is not just doing well. We're in a bull market, Paul. We're in an absolute bull market. And when we're sitting here in, uh, with rates going up, the beautiful thing about private credit is it's predominantly floating rate. So the investors are benefiting from, from rates going up. Is that true uh, across the board, I guess, globally? Or is that, is that something that you're seeing in, in some regions more than others? Well, first of all, I think what we need to think about private credit really consists of 26 sub-strategies, but the vast majority of those strategies are floating rates. So whether you are in, in the euro market or you're sitting here in the U.S., if rates going up, your private credit returns will go up, irrespective of where you find yourself. 
So, Jess, a big you know, part of your business is helping these private equity guys finance their deals, and they can go to a you know a Bank of America, J.P. Morgan, or they can also come to private credit providers. Talk to us about the deal flow you're seeing, because we ain't seeing much on Wall Street. <laughs> no, um, that's exactly what we're all seeing. Is um, it is kind of quiet, right, on the private equity side of things, but that doesn't. That doesn't stop mid-market U.S. companies from needing capital. It's just a question of now, where do you go? You can't really go to the private equity market anymore because valuations are low. And the last thing you want to do if you want to access capital as a mid-market borrower is going into a down round, right? You don't want to have lower valuations than you had two years ago. So you want to look at the credit market. Now, three, four months ago, you could have been forgiven for looking at the banks. But then we saw SVB. Signature Bank, First Republic, all having trouble. So if you are a mid-market company and you need capital, you will be going to the private credit market. Are you, uh, we, I have to ask this because we can't stop talking about AI. Are you seeing any increase in AI-related deals or are you thinking about it more frequently than you previously did? I think there's a lot of talk, a lot of headlines and it's, exciting what's going to happen in the future on AI. Right now, we are just more concerned about any type of mid-market U.S. company or borrower that needs access to capital. Um, so that's, for our daily work, it's less about AI, but it's very interesting to read. All right. So, Jess, in the U.S., a mid-market company, if I come to, I need, you know, a couple hundred million dollars of credit, uh, debt capital, and I go to, my mm-hmm. choices are, I don't know, a good quality mid-sized bank, an M&T bank out of Buffalo. What's the difference in the cost to me, them, versus maybe coming to you? I think what, what we will see is, with the failure of SVB signature and first public, even though we're not having another OE, what we are seeing is there's certainly some lack of regulatory environment that needs to be tightened up a bit. When that tightens up, it will be even more difficult for these banks to actually be a capital provider to, to borrowers. So the, the cost of it will go up. But what's really interesting here is what we learned from SVB Signature and First Republic is there's a mismatch between asset and liability. There's also regulatory risk. And there's a, the, the uh, whole new risk we never thought about before, the depositor risk. When people start leaving your bank and take their deposits with them, it hampers the bank's ability to lend money. And that we do not have in the private credit space. And so we will still be seeing people flock into private credit. Do you anticipate us seeing more of that moving forward, that deposit flight? I really hope not, right? Because we, I think the, um, I think we stabilized the situation pretty well. There are still some issues out there, but I don't think it, it is necessarily terribly grim. Um, but we have seen, you know, deposits may go from some of the smaller, riskier banks into some of the largest, so, you know, less risky banks, so to speak. Um, so there may be a little bit of movement, but I don't think we'll see much movement in, in the depositors. So, Jess, you know, when, when rates were really low, near near zero, the returns that, you know, private credit offered a lot of investors the, were just compelling. Now I can stick money in a two-year treasury and get 4.5% here. Um, what's the, am, I, am I still getting a relative outperformance from investing in private credit? What are you seeing in terms of the funds flow to private credit these days? Listen, 
Paul, you are asking exactly the right question, right? Because you may think that sounds like a good return compared to where we were when we had 0% rates. But look at this. The 10-year analyzed gross returns in leveraged loans, 3.8%. High yield, 39 Direct lending, 9.8%, right? So we will still see that spread between your high yield and your direct lending and your private credit. And so definitely, you still want to, you always want to take a look at the private credit if you can take the illiquid, illiquid asset class. Exactly. So just like 20 seconds left, what's a typical holding time frame for private credit? Well, the private credit funds tends to be five to seven years, okay. where on the private equity, it's probably 10 to 12 years. So you're getting a little bit better liquidity from your private credit. Interesting. And actually, and nowadays, Paul, I'll tell you this, nowadays, you're probably getting very similar rate of returns as we're in a slow growth or a uh, recessionary environment. Your equity returns will continue to be volatile, but also lower right. absolute return. Yep. Whereas All right, Jess, that, that, that's great. So I have to leave it there just because of time. Jess Larson, CEO and founder of Briar Cliff, Briar Cliff Credit Partners. Private credit, I'm telling you folks, it is a awesome business. It looks like a very interesting asset class from a relative return perspective. This is Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.